So I came to church when I was around the age that we've just been praying for. I came as a junior higher, an eighth grader, hated it, and then in my freshman year, God got a hold of my heart. Uh, and it's funny, as I, as I went into my freshman year of high school, there was a couple things that I, was, I kept being told. One, you need to get one of those Bibles. And so, step one, find one of these Bibles that people keep talking about. Check. Step two, read said Bible. First roadblock. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, what do I do with this? And I realized really quick, I didn't know what to read. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to read it. And I didn't know what anything meant. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing with this thing. And everyone kept saying, this is God's word and it changes lives and it'll change your life and it'll make everything make sense. And then I would read it and go, Nothing makes sense. I don't know what I'm doing. And I was super, super confused. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had those seasons you're like, I'm reading, but I don't know what I'm reading. Or maybe you've been trying to read, and it seems like every time you try to read, you're just not sure what's going on. So I put a plan together in my mind of what I was going to do to understand this Bible. The plan was really simple. Ask someone else. And so I put my plan in motion, and I was dating a young uh, girl at that time. And so I said, well, my parents don't go to church, so I couldn't really ask them. And this family was very engaged in the church. They were participating in everything, and, and the dad was leading studies and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, I'll ask them. They must know. And so as I was reading, I probably did what a lot of people would do when they start reading the Bible. You start in Genesis, and you start going, then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, oh no, <laughs> I don't know if I have the gas to get through this book. And so that's where I was at in this moment, and I kept reading about all the sacrifices, all the sacrificial system, and how it worked, and killing this animal, and killing that animal, and having that sin forgiven. And I remember, and it was a very honest, innocent question. I went to uh, my girlfriend's mom, and I said, hey, how come we don't kill animals at church? Because I'm like, I'm reading about a lot of dead animals, and I don't see any, and maybe like, do they have goats in the back? I don't know. No, we don't have goats in the back. And so I remember asking that, and I remember being very disheartened by the response that I was given to my question. And the response was this, that's a great question. I don't know but I'll find out. And I'm like, there's hope. Yeah, I never got the answer to that question. And I went, if this person who's been going to this church for decades doesn't know this answer, I'm in a lot of trouble because I don't know anything. How in the world am I going to understand what's going on? Now, side note, that's a very important question that I asked. And maybe you've asked that question too. And so the reality is this, the answer is quick, I'll make it fast, that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, sacrifice for all of us, past, present, and future sins, that God accepted his uh, death on the cross to meet all the needs of the entire world for eternity. He shut down the altar in that moment that no more sacrifices would be accepted because he was the perfect sacrifice that was accepted by God. I digress. Today, we're going to keep looking at Philip. 
And last week, Tony preached uh, about a conversation uh, that Philip had with Simon the Magician. He did a very good job. Thank you very much, Tony, for coming and bringing God's Word and sharing your testament. It was fantastic. And you can clap for that. That's totally acceptable. <laughs> and so today we're going to look at another interaction that Philip has. Uh, maybe you've heard it before, maybe you hadn't. Uh, I think it's going to be really good for us as we step into today. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to knock out the rest of chapter 8 today as we continue in our study in the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seats uh, in front of you. You can, create, you can take that home if you don't have a Bible. It's a gift. We'd love for you to have it. If not, you can follow along on the screen. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court and the official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Astos, and he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's go ahead and pray, and we will jump into this section. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a God that chases after your people. That you love us so well that in our blindness and darkness you pursue us. Lord, I ask that we read this passage today that if there are areas that maybe we just need to be convicted about to trust you and to follow you and to believe you, that you would do that. In areas where we need to be encouraged about you being a God that loves us, that actually we have great value because we are made in your image and you have not left us to our own devices, but you have provided a way for salvation, that we would be encouraged by that. Lord, we trust that your word will change lives. I've had this sense all week that you're going to speak to someone very powerfully today and that you would use that to maybe change their life for the first time to come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me, take away anything that's not from you, May this be used to glorify you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You know, at times, the things that God calls you to can seem foolish by human perspective. Is that a fair statement? You know, sometimes having faith and stepping out and trusting the Holy Spirit can be scary and doesn't make sense. Just look at Philip. 
If you look at Philip's life and where he's at, it seems like what's going on doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. That uh, what's happening is we see that after Stephen was killed and martyred for his faith and proclaiming Jesus as Lord, as Savior, the church scatters all over the region. And we see that Philip goes up to Samaria. He starts preaching the good news of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Christ. And he goes to preach to people that he probably didn't know very well or like very much. But yet God called him, he went, and these people that he had nothing in common with came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they placed their salvation in him. Now, we see that as he's preaching and proclaiming that people start worshiping God and following God and, and living a life that reflects God, and the church is blowing up. Now you've got, it's not just in Jerusalem this is happening, but now it's happening in Samaria, which is super controversial all in itself. And he's in a major city, which means, you know, nothing better than leading people to Christ and being around what? A lot of people. That helps. That whole salvation part is having people a part of that. So he's in this big city. All these things are happening. And from a church planter's point of view, as an ex-church planter, this is the jackpot. You have gone to a place where people are responding to the word. They're following Christ. They're being baptized. Their lives are being changed. You're like, all right, we're going to set up camp here until Jesus comes back because it's happening. And yet, in all of that, we see that the angel of the Lord comes and he says, hey, I need you to leave this really fruitful ministry, this really great place, and I want you to go south. And I want you to go not towards a major city, not towards a major thoroughfare. I want you to go out to the desert where there's not going to be a lot of people. Um, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, I thought we were going to spread the gospel. Why in the world would I leave this great opportunity to go to a place where there probably is no opportunity? And yet that's exactly what he does. He doesn't complain. He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't tarry. He gets up and he goes. It seems backwards. Yet he listened and was obedient. And let me ask this question right off the bat. Is God calling you to something that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense from earthly standards? Is God calling you to do something, to step out in faith for him, and you have been hesitant to do what God's called you to do? It's funny, as I, as, I, as I watched this unfold, I couldn't help but think about um, when Annette and I were in Seattle. We were doing ministry in the U District of Seattle. Uh, things were going really well. We had a large uh, group of people that were a little bit above Seattle up north, and we were going to plant a new campus out there, and we were going to do that. Um, we had put together a team. Uh, it was a great team. We had a lot of people that were living there. They were committed to that area. And we're like, all right, let's start looking for a home to buy. Let's call this good. This will be our landing place. And then the pandemic hit. There was this big pause. Maybe you heard about it. And so everything kind of stopped. And during that time, God started speaking to Annette and I. And we both heard distinctly, separately, that God was saying, your time in Seattle is coming to an end. I want you to go look for a lead pastor position. I'll, I'll be honest. I was like, what? Like, no, things are going well. Like, we, we've been here. We've figured out how to live in Seattle and still love Jesus and not turn from him. People are coming to Jesus. People are learning. People are growing. They're being evangelized. Like, this is good, God. Like, what's going on? And so we were confused. And if I'm honest, 
the team that I was working with in Seattle was also confused. They're like, what do you mean? You, you said that you felt like this is what you wanted to do. And like, we want you to be here. We, want, we think that you're the right guy to do this. We don't want you to go. What can we do to keep you to stay? Yet through all of that, we started looking. Told the elders immediately, which was like really scary without having a plan. Didn't know we were going. But what we found is that what we thought was the right plan for our family God had a better plan, which led us here today, which is where we are. We didn't know that he had this other thing that he was going to do. We didn't know that he wanted us to come down to another area that needed to hear the gospel. And we are so grateful that we stepped out in faith to do that. Well, let's get back to Philip. So he heads back down towards Jerusalem. So he's up in Samaria. So he leaves Jerusalem, goes up to Samaria comes back down, so he goes, oh, there's, there, there they are, there's Jerusalem, and he keeps going past, and he goes on this road, this desert road that goes all the way to, to Gaza, which is on the coast, okay? So he's heading down that way, and he's heading towards the, um, the northern tip of Africa is really where he's kind of going. Now, maybe you've heard me say this at some point as I've been preaching in a very sarcastic tone. Wow, what a coincidence. Have you ever heard me say that? You're going to hear it a lot today, and you'll probably hear it more as we move into the future. Because here's the thing. I don't believe there's such a thing as a coincidence. I just don't. Because if the Bible is true, then there is a sovereign God who is in control of all things. That everything has a purpose and a meaning. And that he takes all this brokenness of this world to turn it for his glory and for our good though we may not see it in the moment, that he is in charge doing something all the time and in his time. So as it happens, there is this Ethiopian who is going back from Jerusalem. Now, before we get into the interaction of the Ethiopian and Philip and what's going on, I want us to look about what we can learn about this man just from the scripture. So one of the things that someone taught me as they started to walk with me, and I'll get to who he is later in the sermon, is he taught, you got you to gotta slow down when you read. Because a lot of times the answers that you're asking are actually in the text if you just take the time to ask this one big question. You know what it is? Why? You ask why enough, you can start to dig around in what's going on in the Scriptures, and God will start to reveal to you what's happening. So what can we learn about this Ethiopian, about this guy, uh, from what the Scriptures tell us? Well, one, he's an Ethiopian. So he's living down in Africa. During that time, Ethiopia was actually a very large area at the time. Right now, it's kind of a little bit off the north, uh, but that's where it's at. So most likely, he was a, an African-American black man. That's who he was, okay? So looked very different from those in Jerusalem. Though they were all dark-skinned, he would have had much darker skin, would have stood out from who he was around. Two, he's a eunuch. Let's get into that. Um, at some point... In his life, this man most likely made a choice to have himself castrated. You're like, that's not normal. Well, that's what took place. Now, you may ask, why would someone do that just for a job? Um, the reality is this, that to work among those in royalty, there was this thing that was a fear all the time of the intermingling of someone else outside of the bloodline with that line and where the inheritance would go and where the kingdom would go. So they tried to keep those in tight, tight reins. And so the only way to have offspring stopped is to, well, get rid of the stuff that makes offspring. 
And so that's what was going on. So that's who this individual was. So we also find out that he worked for the queen. So apparently, as he had been progressing in his career choices, he had done really well to where he was kind of at the top of his game. He had kind of arrived in a spot where he had worked really hard. He had done all the right things. He was, had a lot of power. He had a lot of clout. He had a lot of influence. He's kind of a big deal. Not someone to scoff at. It says that he was in charge of the queen's treasure. What, what was he then? He was like the CFO of Ethiopia. That's really who he was. If he was in charge of the treasure, it means that he had um, access to the most powerful family in Ethiopia and access to their finances. That's a big responsibility. They don't just give that out to anybody. So we find that this guy is trustworthy as well. Now it says that he went to Jerusalem to worship, meaning that he went over 1,000 miles on foot, taking somewhere up to almost a year there and back to make this journey, putting himself in a precarious situation with his job. I don't know, anyone ever left their job for a year and like, hey, is my job still here? Like people jockeying for that position? But there was something about this God in Jerusalem that he felt so inclined to go worship and pursue. And so he did. We also find out that he's reading the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah tells us that he was trying to understand the God of Israel more so he could worship him more completely. So the Holy Spirit told Philip to run up to the chariot. So he's in a chariot, which means he's probably got an entourage of people following him, that there's probably oxen or some kind of large, uh, powerful animal moving the chariot down the way. And so the chariot's moving at a faster-than-walking pace. That's really what we need to know as he's going. So, and um, what we find is that he runs up to the chariot, and it just so happened that he was reading Scripture out loud. Now, you're like, that's weird. Like, is he, like, learning how to read? Uh, in that day and in that age, it was very common practice that they would read out loud. Um, that's weird for us because, well, most of us, you know, we just read our books and we listen in our minds. But that's not how they did it in the ancient world. So he was reading out loud, and he was reading some scripture on the road to Gaza. And so you have to kind of, like, put yourself in the spot because it's, it's kind of comical if you think about what's happening. So here's this chariot moving at a faster than a walking pace, and the Holy Spirit says, hey, go over to that chariot. So he's got he's to run up to the chariot, right? Well, if he starts walking, what happens? The chariot keeps going. So you've got Philip, and he's like, hey, man, how's it going? And he's listening, and he's like, so you know, what you, you know what you understand, what you read? You got, you got that figured out? And he's like having to run with him as he's having this really weird conversation with this guy who's next to him. It's kind of funny. And so he has this, he's like, well, how can I unless somebody guides me? My heart rate's really up right now. I feel like I got my steps in. Um, wow, what a coincidence, right? that a Jew who understood the scriptures was on a road that he had no business being on until a few days ago when led by the Holy Spirit to go down to Gaza on the same road that a man was reading the scriptures in a very important passage at the same time. Isn't it funny how life just works out? No. No, it's not. <laughs> 
That's not at all what's happening here. That God told him to go there so he would meet this man and hear him so he would understand what he was reading. That's powerful that this God cared for this man so much that he would disrupt everything that was going on in Philip's life, that he loved him enough to bring him there to impart the truth and the wisdom of the gospel to him. It's a divine appointment. See, God was doing something greater because God was spreading the gospel everywhere in this moment. We've watched the gospel spread just like Jesus said before he ascended to heaven, right? It's going to start first with the disciples, then it spread to the city of Jerusalem. Then we saw after Stephen was martyred and killed that he started to spread to Samaria. And now it's starting to move out into the rest of the world. It's kind of like that middle ground of moving outside of that. Or as Jesus would say, to the ends of the earth. See, the gospel is kind of like a dam, you know, a water-restraining device. Sorry, we can't swear in church. And so you've got this water-restraining device that's there, and you've got this water behind it, right? Now, water's not light. Water actually weighs a lot. And you start accumulating millions and millions and millions of gallons, there's pressure that forms from that water. So much so that when they build dams, they have like breaking points. They know there's breaking points, so they have drainage that goes off to the side. So if the water gets up too high, that pressure's got to go someplace. And so that's how they relieve the pressure so the dams can crack. But if they can't relieve that pressure, what happens? The dam will burst. It will not be able to withstand the pressure. Here's the thing. The gospel is like the water behind a dam. And the Bible would say that the gospel is the power of God, that the message of Jesus Christ dying for others so they could be freed from their sins is power, God's power. And it's pressing on this dam. And you know what's funny? It can't contain. It cannot contain the gospel. And so it'll burst forth. But instead of bringing destruction and havoc and mayhem, it brings something better brings salvation, justification, and liberation as it goes, and that water bursts forth, and it spreads everywhere. It hits the plains, it hits the towns, it hits the cities, it hits all these little areas that we could never get to, and you know the best part about that? Usually it stops when the dam runs out of what? Water. There is no end to the gospel. It flows forever, and the dam has broken loose, and the gospel is spreading forward, and it's moving even outside of Samaria and Judea. It is moving to the ends of the earth. And so we see that the Ethiopian invites him up to sit in the chariot. He stopped running. He needs to take a breather. He gets into the chariot, and they start talking. They start reading this passage, and the passage that we're in was Isaiah 53, 7. Okay, that's where they were. Now, if you know your Bible, if you have some history reading God's Word, you know that Isaiah 53 is a massive section. Some would call it the, the fifth gospel, that it's so much prophecy about the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would come and save Israel and the world, that it's like, it's just so compact and it's so condensed, and it just so happens that this guy is reading that section. What a coincidence. Just what a coincidence. And the Ethiopian asks about this, says, is this the prophet talking about himself? Is he predicting what's going to happen to him? Or is it about somebody else? 
Who, who's going to have to suffer this way? Who's going to be denied justice? Why is this innocent man going to die? And why isn't he saying anything about it? Humility is the soft soil of the heart that the Holy Spirit likes to work in. I love that this Ethiopian, this very influential, powerful, wealthy man that people actually listen to has enough humility to say, I don't get it. Help me understand. Right? The fact to just say, who's going to tell me means I don't, know, I don't know what's going on. But at the heart of it, what it's saying is I do want to know what's going on. Someone help me see who this is and what's this about. And I've noticed something as I've, again, I didn't come from the church. So my, I just ask why about everything. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? How come some lady grabbed my hat and threw it off in a church service one day and said, well, she's just angry. I said, okay, well, that's not biblical. And so there's all these things attached to that, but I, didn't, I just ask why all the time. I notice more and more that people that have been around the church for a long time, they're so afraid to ask why. They're, they're so afraid to say, I don't understand. And that pride keeps them in ignorance because they're unwilling to say, I don't know. I want to know. Can someone walk with me and teach me and show me and open the words with me and challenge me to think about what God is really doing? Like, don't be embarrassed because of fear of what others think of you. Like, isn't the point to have a deeper, loving relationship with this God who cares so we can worship Him more fully? That's the whole point. We're all walking together, and that's what I love. We're all in different spots. Like, you may be like, oh, Simon, you're so far along. But I talk to some of you, and I'm like, man, I am so not far along. They're so much farther along than I am. And I love when the body comes together. This is why we do life groups, to get together, to spend time together. We try to load the group up with lots of people from different generations so we actually can learn and grow from each other in that. And in verse 30, uh, 35, we get a response from Philip. Then Philip opened his mouth and began with the scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. It looks like, and he opened his mouth, just like a dam that has bursted forth. The gospel poured out from his mouth, and he started walking through the Old Testament, showing him all these things about Jesus and who he was, and what he did, and how he met those things. It says he started with that passage, and he moved backwards. He would say that Jesus was the better Adam, that he didn't deny Christ, that he believed the Father in that moment, that he's the better Moses, that can actually fulfill the law, that he is the better priest that goes between man and God, that he is actually not only just the priest, but he's also the sacrifice, he's the better sacrifice. He's the better prophet that communicates perfectly God's will no matter what to the nations. That he is the substitute. That he's meeting all of these things that the Old Testament spoke about. And that's who Jesus is. And he gets to this point where he's like, and the guy that you're reading about, this this guy is the Messiah, the Christ, the one that would come and save. That is Jesus. He is that guy. He's the one who did it. That we were broken and separated off from God because of sin with no ability to get access to him. 
But the reality was this, is that we inherited the sins of Adam and Eve when they decided not to trust God, and we've committed sins of our own. We are permeating with the brokenness of sin that keeps us from God because God has to judge and punish that sin. But yet he said he sent his son to live the law that we couldn't live, to meet his perfect standard. That he went and took our sin, placed it on himself as the substitute, went to the cross, bore our punishment, bore our shame, bore our guilt, met God's requirement to have sin forgiven. And then he gives us his righteousness. So now we can stand before God right and clean. He sees us. He says, my son has met the requirement for the wrath of God. It is paid in full. You can have relationship with me without fear of judgment and punishment. That's what Jesus, that's what, that's what Philip's telling this Ethiopian. The thing that you desire, the thing that you want is the very thing that Jesus did. He said, oh yes, he is, he is talking about someone else. And he is great and he is mighty and he is powerful. And I love what we see is there's this mirroring going on that's happening if you know Luke 24, there's the road to Emmaus. You've got these two disciples after Jesus died, and they're walking down this road. And I, the Bible's so crazy. And so this, this, this guy shows up who they don't recognize, but it's Jesus. And I don't know how he, like, he has like some kind of like, you know, Mission Impossible maskers. I don't know what he has, but they don't know who he is. And so he's walking with like, hey, so what's going on, guys? Oh, you didn't hear? Oh, what happened in Jerusalem? Oh, the Savior died. Are you the only one who doesn't know? And so then Jesus then listens to them tell everything that happened. And then he says this, starting in, in verse 25. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer for these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and things concerning himself. That he just walked through the Old Testament and said, this is who I am. This is what I did. Then they're like, stay with us. He's like, okay, let's get dinner. And they're eating dinner and he's like, surprise, it's me! And then he like dis disappears. He's like, what just happened? He pulled off the mask, I guess. And so it's crazy, but it sounds very similar to what Stephen did in Acts 7, isn't it? As he walked through the entire history of the Jewish people. It sounds very similar to what Peter did multiple times in Acts 2 and so on, where he starts quoting the Old Testament, showing how Jesus was the one who actually fulfilled the very thing they were waiting for. Now, I don't want to read, I don't want to overextend myself in the passage, but I think we need to do something here. We've got to point something out about the Ethiopian. Here's the, here's the why question. We've got to ask the bigger question. Why would this man take upwards of a year off of work and travel around a thousand miles on foot to go to a temple to worship a God in the Bible? See, there's all these unanswered questions that are attached to it. Like, did he convert, convert to Judaism at some point in his life? Was he born into Judaism at some point? Was, was there something that happened with the queen of Sheba and King Solomon where she learned about the God of the Bible when she went back to Ethiopia, that she communicated that, and there was some kind of connection there? I, I don't know. I don't know what was happening with him in that moment. But why would he spend all this money with all this time to go to the temple? Because there was one huge, glaring problem when he got there. Do you know what it is? Anyone? 
He wasn't going to go to worship. He couldn't worship there. He was not going to be allowed to worship there. He, he couldn't be with the other Jews. Deuteronomy, now I'm going to read this, just bear with me in the first couple of words here. Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 2. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may either enter the assembly of the Lord. He was a eunuch. He's not going to go in. He's not going to get to do that thing, right? But what was it about this God to get there? See, the law was going to prohibit him from getting in. He would have never gotten the access that he desired to be in the relationship that he wanted. Yet it drew him in. And it caused him to spend many days moving towards that. And so I start asking these questions. Was there something that he read that may have given him hope? Was there something that he knew that caused him to do that? Isaiah 65, 3 through 5 says this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better then sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Do you think that maybe he read this as, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe this is the God that I've been looking for. Maybe this is the one that will love me and allow me to worship him. See, God knows that anything other than him will leave us empty and dry inside. He knows that anything that we pursue for our joy, our happiness, our hope will ultimately fail us, even good and beautiful things. See, I believe this man had accomplished so much that he was, he had everything you could possibly want in life. Successful career, lots of money, clout and power, access, and all of these things had failed him. And he needed something that would not fail him, that would fill the void in his life of being connected to the God of the universe, that he knew that there had to be more to life than what he had, that there was some meaning and purpose that had caused him to travel so far to see if the meaning and the purpose was there. But if the law kept him from God, how would he know him? You see, the scripture shows over and over again that God is a God that pursues and chases after us. He found the disciples. He found the apostles. He found Matthias. He found Stephen. He found Philip. Just keep going down the road. He pursues the Jews, their entire history, in spite of their brokenness and their failures. He continually holds them and chases after him and chides after them. See, this God had pursued this Ethiopian man that left the temple, and let's be really clear, more confused than when he started. Because he's still like, I don't get it. And the fact that he was able to even buy a scroll to bring back with him, it says, how did you even get a, a scroll of Isaiah? And yet he's like, I don't understand 
but because God loved this man so much, he sent Philip to show him the truth, and the only way to be right with God was through his son that was spoken in the very text that he was reading. And I have to believe, and this is, I don't think it's too far of a stretch of the imagination. If he was in Isaiah 53, and he was reading verse 7, do you think he might have read verses 1 through 6 before then? I mean, I just, we kind of read in an order, right? So it would make sense that he would read that. I'm not saying he had to, but I'm saying he probably did. So let's read Isaiah 53, 1 through 6, and see what he would have read to get to this point to understand that this person was going to have to die. Who is blessed that he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Who is this man that would do this? It's Jesus. He did not have to fulfill the law because Jesus did it for him. He met the law. He met the requirement. He is the Messiah and Isaiah. He brought him hope. He is the righteousness of God because he believed and received the Holy Spirit. So Philip must have said something along the lines of what Peter said in Acts 2.38, which was, repent and be baptized. <laughs> something along that, maybe he'd heard that, maybe he was there when Peter did it, but he probably said something along that way, because when the Ethiopians saw water in the desert, what a coincidence. He said, what's stopping me from doing this right now? Well, why baptism? Well, here's what he's saying in baptism. I reject my old life. I die to my old life, and my life is in Christ now, and my salvation and security is in him and him alone. Um, so baptism doesn't save us. It's something we do because we're saved. We're symbolically saying something. When we stand on the water, we're, represent, we're representing our old life that we stand there. So this is who I was. This is what I used to do. When we go under the water, it's as though we're being buried, and we're dying to our old self. And when we come out of the water, it's the new life that we have in Christ. He is saying that Jesus is my Lord, He is my Savior, and my allegiance is with Him, and I want the world to know and make a public declaration of my following of the Savior of the world. That's why He wanted to get baptized. Now, I am slowly running out of time. Actually, no, I'm quickly running out of time. Uh, maybe you look in your Bible like, hey, let's turn to verse 37. It's not there in a lot of new Bibles. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, 36, 38, I'm not good in math, but I know that that's missing something. So um, without going into a ton of detail, 
verse 37 historically it says this if you believe with all your heart you may and he replied i believe that jesus christ is the son of god that's what that would say in that spot um, the way that we have the Bibles, we take the original and we make sure that that compares to anything we have. There's, there's so many copies of Scripture and passages and what we have, and the way that we fact-check that is that we can go backwards. What came before is always going to be closer to the original, right? Like the game of telephone. You ever played telephone? The, there's like usually one person who's got it right. That's the first guy, <laughs> Right? And it changes as it goes. And so at some point around the 6th or 10th century, we saw that this was put in there. I'm not going to go into it, but we find that there's an earlier script that we have. I think it's called Papyrus 43, and that is uh, in the 3rd century, and that was not included. What he said was not wrong. It just wasn't in the original. So what you'll find is if you have a, a verse 37 missing, it's at the bottom in a footnote. That's where you'll find that. And it's really a lot like Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. That's really what he's saying, right? So it's not wrong, it's just not there. I want you to hear that this, that the role of the Holy Spirit is to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Christ and to bring unity to God's people. And that's exactly what he's doing with this Ethiopian and this Hebrew. Philip then leaves. Now, I'm not going to get into, did he vanish or did he just leave? I think you can go either way with that. Uh, have fun in life groups of that one. So do that. But I do know this, that when he left, when he got to where he was going, what did he do? He preached the gospel. He proclaimed Christ all up the coast, all the way northern up the coast. That's what he did. And that was his ministry because that is our purpose as Christians. That is our meaning of life is to take the most powerful message in the world forward to the nations that don't know who Jesus is. I love this passage for so many reasons. See, though my girlfriend's mom couldn't answer my question, there was a guy who answered every single one of my stupid questions as a young teenager. His name was Mike McKay. He walked with me. And he would say, there's no dumb questions. I'm like, I bet you there are. I bet you I'm asking some of them. But he took the time to teach me and to show me what God's word said and what he was doing. It reminds me that Jesus pursued me. And I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. That only because of his grace and mercy and love that I have a salvation in Christ alone. He showed me that the Holy Spirit has worked in my, my life and my wife's life and my kids' lives as he's taken us all over the West Coast sharing Jesus and seeing people come to know who he is. We've been called to step out in faith at scary moments in our life and start asking him this, how did God save you? What did God do in your life? How did he pursue you? Because let me tell you something that it's not. It's not a coincidence. He's calling you to the same thing today. The question is, will you listen? Will you trust? Maybe it's for the first time that you actually listen and you realize that you have to do something. You have to admit that you're a sinner and that you're in need of Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Take the position of humility and turn to Christ for your salvation. It's not a coincidence that you're here if you're hearing this. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time where we could open your word. Lord, thank you for giving me the opportunity to reflect on what you've done in my life, how you've worked in my heart, how you've done so many things. 
Lord, I don't know how you're going to connect with the men and women here this morning, but I ask that you would speak loudly to them, boldly to them, and as they hear you, that they would respond in faith and step out, that we'd believe what your word says. We would see, Jesus, how you are the fulfillment of all these things, how you continue to pursue us and chase after us because you love us and you care for your children, no matter where they are in the world. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen.